You ever feel like there's always commentary running in the back of your head, and that no matter what you're doing, you can't turn it off? So much of my life has been ruined by an inability to really experience things. I'm constantly running angles, making critiques, and checking my own safety, living in some sort of negative self-involvement. One symptom of this for me is living in a sort of false guilt. And the thing about false guilt is, it's never 100% false. There's always something about me which is unredeemed. And as a result, there's always something to feel guilty about. The story of Christ is the story of God coming to live with humans. Humans killing God, and God somehow being able to forgive it. Sometimes I'll feel guilty over being tempted by something, even if I don't give in to it. Yet if God can forgive the murdering of God, then I still feel guilty for something I didn't even give in to. And what does that say about how I view him? And even more than that, what does it say about how I see our respective sizes? Does it not imply that I view myself and God as peers? There's a verse in scripture which says, I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. This may seem like an obvious choice. You may think, obviously everyone would choose blessings if it were that easy. Oh, do we just choose blessings? Is that how we fix our life? Yeah, good call. You know, my car broke down and I'm having problems at home and all that, but... Yeah, good call. I'll just choose blessings. Thanks for that. But I'm not so sure it's even a simple choice. I actually think it's a really difficult one. I believe perhaps our deepest impulse is to play God. Our deepest pull is to control the world that we find ourselves in. And this desire will take any path available to it. Lying, bullying or even victimhood or depression. To live in the grace of God is to live on His terms. I'm not saying here that He's trying to trick you into mindlessly serving Him. I believe the will of God is actually to elevate your uniqueness. As Lewis wrote, Sameness is to be found among the most natural of men, not among those that surrender to Christ. How monotonously alike are all the great tyrants and conquerors, but how gloriously different are the saints. If you look for yourself, you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else. But still, no matter how beautiful the offer is, there's always part of me that would rather have control than any of that. Give me worry, self-loathing, and depression. I just want control, and I'll suffer anything to have it. As I mentioned once before, the scariest thought in the universe is not, what if there's no God and everything is meaningless? The actual scariest thought in the universe is, what if there is a God? And it's not me. So I want to read a few pieces about the road out of this kind of negative self-involvement. And the road to truly choosing blessings. 
unironically to live on God's terms and to say, if you have grace for me, I'll take it. And if you still love me, I'll let you do that. And I'll just say thank you in every way I know how. And I'll just live there and we'll be together. Why is that hard? Shouldn't seem like a hard thing, right? Maybe we don't really trust God. Maybe we thought that he should jump when we said jump and he didn't. Maybe life didn't go the way we thought. And maybe we blame him for that. I'm not suggesting that if I were in your shoes and I had suffered the things you suffered that I wouldn't do that. In fact, I don't do that when things are going good. Most of the time, things in my life are going fine and I still try to live on my own terms. So don't let me uh, suggest to you that if I had gone through everything you went through, that, oh, I'd just, uh, just run to God in gratitude. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that it's the only thing that works. So I'm going to read a piece today from this little book called The Practice of the Presence of God. And this book is really uh, meaningful to me uh, for a few reasons. One, because uh, it's 300 years old. I like things that have survived a really long time because it suggests that there's something about them which is deeply true. You know, there are two ways to test what is true. To duplicate it over a large amount of people and to duplicate it over a long period of time. And so uh, that's one reason that I, that I value it. The other uh, reason is that it's called the practice of the presence of God. And I think there's a beautiful um, humility in the idea that it has to be practiced. Um, so this is about a man who was like a, uh, a guy that worked at a monastery 300 years ago. Um, so I'm going to just read you this piece. Brother Lawrence said that he was always guided by love. He was never influenced by any other interest, including whether or not he was saved. He was content doing even the smallest chore, if he could do it for the love of God. He even found himself quite well off, which he attributed to the fact that he sought only God and not his gifts. He believed that God is much greater than any of the simple gifts that he gives us. Rather than desiring them from him, he chose to look beyond the gift, hoping to learn more about God himself. Sometimes he even said he wished he could avoid receiving his reward, so that he would have the pleasure of doing something solely for God. And if this sounds like a million miles away from you, don't worry, it sounds like a million miles away from me. But, what do we live in? Okay, let's let's throw this out the window and say this is just fluff from some guy who uh, really was nothing like this, and he's just saying this uh, to pat himself on the back. Okay, all right, let's live in my world. Let's live in your world. Um, how is it great? Is it everything you dreamed it could be? Is uh, you know is cynicism uh, all it's cracked up to be? Is it? Uh, it kind of sucks. So uh, yeah, so let's keep going. For some years, Brother Lawrence had been quite disturbed because he wasn't certain that he was saved. Even so, he maintained the attitude that he had become a Christian because he loved God, and so he would continue to love him, whether he was certain of his salvation or not. This way, he would at least have the earthly pleasure of doing everything he could for the love of God. After that, he did not dwell on thoughts of heaven or hell. His life was filled with freedom and rejoicing. Lifting all his sins up to God, he tried to show him how undeserving of his grace he truly was. But the Lord continued to bless him. Sometimes God even took our brother by the hand 
and led him before the heavenly court as if he wished to honor his lowly servant. In the beginning, Brother Lawrence declared that a little effort was needed to form the habit of continually conversing with God, telling him everything that was happening. But after a little careful practice, God's love refreshed him, and it became quite easy. Whenever he considered doing some good deed, he always consulted God about it, saying, Lord, I will never be able to do that if you don't help me. When he sinned, he confessed it to God with these words, and this I found really moving. I can do nothing better without you. Please keep me from falling and correct the mistakes I make. After that, he did not feel guilty about the sin. Brother Lawrence pointed out that he spoke very simply and frankly to God. He asked for help with things as he needed it, and his experience had been that God never failed to respond. Brother Lawrence was aware of his sins and was not at all surprised by them. That is my nature, he would say. It is the only thing I know how to do. He simply confessed his sins to God without pleading with him or making excuses. After this, he was able to peacefully resume his regular activity. And I see that as just so beautiful. The idea that he walked so closely with God that when something went wrong, when he did something wrong, he just said, God, this is my nature. I am very sorry. Thank you. And then he just moved on. That the closeness, the trust, the intimacy that that kind of relationship suggests. So next, I wanted to uh, read a piece from the Screwtape Letters, which is uh, a book that Lewis wrote as a conversation between two demons. So this is basically about what should the role of our self-view be? You know, what is the healthiest view uh, that we should have of ourselves? And I think this is um, a really interesting uh, piece on, on that front. I'm going to start kind of in the middle here. Our enemy wants to turn the man's attention away from himself onto him, onto Christ, and to the man's neighbors. All the abjection and self-hatred are designed in the long run solely for this end. Unless they attain the end, they do us little harm, and they may even do us good if they keep the man concerned with himself, and above all, if self-contempt can be made the starting point for contempt of others, and thus for gloom, cynicism, and cruelty. You must therefore conceal from the patient the true end of humility. Let him think of it not as self-forgetfulness, but as a certain kind of opinion, namely a low opinion, of his own talents and character. Some talents, I gather, he really has. Fix in his mind the idea that humility consists in trying to believe those talents to be less valuable than he believes them to be. No doubt they are, in fact, less valuable than he believes, but that is not the point. The great thing is to make him value an opinion for some quality other than truth, thus introducing an element of dishonesty and make-believe into the heart of what otherwise threatens to become a virtue. By this method, thousands of humans have been brought to think that humility means pretty women thinking they need to believe they are ugly, and clever men trying to believe they are fools. 
and since what they are trying to believe may, in some cases, be nonsense, they could not succeed in believing it, and we, the enemy, has the chance of keeping their minds endlessly revolving on themselves in an effort to achieve the impossible. To anticipate the enemy's strategy, we must consider his aims. God wants to bring the man to a state of mind in which he could design the best cathedral in the world and know it to be the best, and rejoice in that fact without being any more or less glad at having done it than if it had been done by someone else. That God wants us in the end to be so free from any bias in our own favor that we can rejoice in our own talents as frankly and gratefully as in anyone else's or in a sunrise, an elephant, or a waterfall. He wants each man in the long run to be able to recognize all creatures, even himself, as glorious and excellent things. And he wants to kill their animal self-love as soon as possible. But it is his long-term policy, I fear, to restore to them a new kind of self-love, a charity and gratitude for all selves including their own, when they have really learned to love their neighbors as themselves, they will be allowed to love themselves as their neighbors. For we must never forget what is the most repellent and inexplicable trait in our enemy. He really loves the hairless bipeds he has created and always gives back to them with his right hand what he took away with his left. His whole effort, therefore, will be to get the man's mind off the subject of his own value altogether. He would rather the man thought himself a great architect or a great poet and then forget about it than that he should spend much time and pains trying to think himself a bad one. You know, there's this idea that the heart of God is to make us dull, to make us sort of um, just servants without a mind, without creativity without anything that is unique to us, but that as we give every single aspect of our life, death, and heart to God, that we become more unique, that the things which are eccentric about us become elevated, that excellence, that we be excellent at the things which fit the shape we have, is in the will of God. To walk in the beauty of God is that the things which are unique to us would be brought to their fullest extent and that in the end his desires for us to even be able to experience the beauty of the things which we have made but to feel it in the same way and to feel it just as strongly if someone else made it. His desire is that we feel the beauty of everything he made and of every good thing that everyone has made and to live in that state of mind. So I want to end with a few things about how we might get out of our head, because for me, the beginning of this journey is to get out of my head. The first thing to get out of my head, I heard someone say this, and it, it's been really helpful to me, is to name five things in your immediate surroundings. So tree, grass, steering wheel, water, uh, jug, book, or whatever. So like, if you're really lost in your head and you can't seem to get out of your head, Name five things that are immediately in your surroundings. And this, again, sounds silly, but it has worked for me several times. 
the next thing would be to just call someone. A lot of times um, when I call my brother or call someone and just talk to them about just some, you know, sort of mundane thing um, that's going on today, that it has been uh, a blessing to get out of my head to try to step into someone else's world for a few moments. And that as I, you know, just take in whatever their world looks like today, um, it kind of gives me a sense of place, gives me a sense of perspective and a sort of brings peace. Um, the next one is another one that sounds dumb. Roll your windows down. You know, we so much of our life is spent in a version of reality which is uh, kind of a simulation, you know, via social media and screens in general that it's so unnatural to the um, species that we are without going too far down the granola route um, just roll your windows down sometimes and turn down the music for a second and literally just acknowledge the you know the place that we're in you know that sounds so dumb and you know if I were l listening to someone say this I would I don't know that I would uh, you know take it very seriously but um, you know but I'm becoming more open to, to these kind of things because you know if it's bad enough in your head if you've had it uh, if you've had anxiety, if you've had, um, you know, sort of negative self-involvement bad enough, then uh, then you might be more and more open to these things. And the last thing, and this is what the whole podcast has been about, is to rejoice in tiny good things. If you find yourself in too much irony, in too much status, in too much self-involvement of any kind, positive or negative, to unironically enjoy good small things, very small things in many cases... Happiness and gratitude are roughly the same thing. It's not that, oh, you should be one of those good people that is grateful all the time, and then, then you'll be a good boy. That's not it. If you don't have gratitude, you can't have happiness. They are made out of the same thing. Your ha ability to experience happiness is directly tied to your ability to feel and participate in gratitude. And that if you find yourself not feeling anything good, not feeling any enjoyment out of any aspect of life, you probably have very little gratitude. There are so many boring, normal, mundane, daily things which are unbelievably complex, which are unbelievably good. And if we can't feel them, if we can't experience them, if we cannot experience gratitude, then we cannot experience happiness. And as someone who has spent a great amount of time unnecessarily worrying, unnecessarily void of enjoyment, gratitude for small things is the way out. Gratitude for the kindness of God. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. May we accept the forgiveness of God unironically and say, God, wherever you are, I want to be with you. And wherever that takes me, that is where I want to be. I just want to feel close to you, and I'll go wherever you go. If you make me rich, if you make me poor, if I live or if I die, I just want to be close to you. I love you guys.